I want to greet all of you this morning in worthy name of Jesus. It's good to be together. It's a beautiful Lord's Day morning. Looking forward to the rest of the service with you all. I trust uh, the Lord has something to say to us through the sermon. I'm kind of in the middle of a three-sermon series on how God's people relate to suffering. I don't know if you're aware that I'm in that series. I realize sometimes that I'm well aware of what I'm doing and I forget to say it. I'll uh, excuse you if you don't remember the last message, which was the first message in a series on how God's people relate to suffering. Um, That message was 11 weeks ago. And when I started preparing for this message, I felt a little sorry for myself because I thought about going back and reviewing and I almost felt like I have to go back and start over again. And I don't want to put all of you through that entire process. We do need to do a little bit of reviewing. So we're in the epistle of 1 Peter. I find it interesting that 1 Peter is so late in the list of New Testament books. If you think about the New Testament and its arrangement, somebody had to set that in order. The Lord didn't do it, and I don't know that the Holy Spirit did it. It's my understanding that, at least to some degree, uh, Luther was responsible for ordering the New Testament. And what I have read is that it was his desire in ordering the books in the New Testament to put those that are the most glorifying to Christ first. And as you go through the list of the books of the New Testament, through the 27 books, they're less and less able to glorify Christ. I'm not saying that's how it is, but that's what I understand was the thinking that put the epistle of 1 Peter near the end. So we have the uh, the epistles to the churches of Paul. Um, we have the pastoral epistles, and then we have the general epistles. Uh, Peter, James, John, and Jude. And uh, James, Peter, John, Jude. Anyway, uh, James was called an epistle of straw by Luther. And then Peter, I don't know, must be worse than an epistle of straw. But it's been called the epistle of suffering. And the, the concept of suffering and how the Christian relates to suffering and God's eternal purposes in suffering are really the theme of the book. If we read the book and we miss the teaching on suffering, we've missed Peter's burden for us in his letter. So we want to pay attention to that and not just blow through it. I thought about greeting you this morning in the name of not Jesus, but the suffering servant. I noticed the verse on the board behind me. This is a verse that in nominal Christianity, there's a very different understanding, I think, than we would have. And that is this understanding that Jesus suffered once for all, and that suffering's done, and there should be no further suffering. And if I asked you this morning, are you suffering servants of Christ? Well, if you're suffering, something's wrong. You're outside of God's will. You're under the judgment of God. You need to get your act together. You need to start living right to get out from under this suffering because something's wrong. After all, Jesus was wounded. Jesus was bruised. Jesus was chastised. Jesus was striped 
for us that we wouldn't need to be. Today, there are more than a few. In fact, the fastest growing segment of Christianity, charismatic Pentecostal uh, health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it, doctrine and teaching, is all oriented to this idea that if you are unhappy, if you're having difficulties, if you are suffering, you're outside of God's will because God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, we would reject that, but I'm not sure that we entirely embrace Peter's view of suffering for the child of God. So I want to spend some time exploring that. Are you suffering servants? Do you want to be? Jesus came upon a man born blind and was asked by his disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was obvious this man was under the judgment of God. He had done something wrong. He was suffering. Jesus said, neither. The purpose for this man's suffering was the glory of God. Seems a pretty simple point of doctrine, but I want to spend some time considering God's eternal purposes in the suffering of his people. Last, wasn't last week, two weeks ago, heard a very good sermon from 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can turn there, that's not my text, but I was kind of intrigued by Nathan's sermon. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I think he was making something of an application to current events. And I certainly don't mean to take away from that being valid. I uh, also noticed, though, the verses that follow the verse that he used as a text for his sermon. The context of 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Goes on to say, that's a powerful tool, that's a powerful resource, this spirit of power and love and sound mind. What do we do with it? It's not just a medallion we wear around our neck so we can strut around or swagger with our arms out, oblivious to the needs and problems of the world. That's not what that spirit of power is for. So what is that power for? Goes on in verse 8. The word therefore makes us look forward and back. We look back to that spirit of power and love and sound mind. We look forward to what we're called to do with it. Verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, Paul, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now, that's kind of King James. If I turn that around to kind of a kinley translation, we could say, be a partner in the suffering of the gospel using the power of God. God has given you, if you're a child of God, the spirit of power of Almighty God. It's meant to be used. And this verse says that you're to use it to be a partaker, a participant, of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Use that power and embrace the afflictions that come as a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
All right. So I said First Peter has been called the epistle of suffering. I actually think that's incorrect. I think it's an oversimplification. I would say it's more than that, more than an epistle about suffering. It's an attempt by Peter to uncover for us the eternal purposes of God in the suffering of his people. God does not waste the tears of his saints. I've said that before. I'll probably say it again before I finish this epistle. Very important that we trust the character of God, that he's not capricious. He doesn't pass out suffering out of some sick desire to see his creation twist and writhe in agony in this fallen world. I know none of you would accuse God of that, but we don't want to drift into that kind of thinking. Peter wants to uncover for us the eternal purposes of suffering as God allows it to happen to his people. So I want to ask a question, and I don't mean to be insulting about it. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, which will be our text. So I want to ask a question, and maybe I should just ask the first or second grade Sunday school class this, so don't be offended, but What was God's purpose in Christ's suffering? I'd be a little curious to know what popped into everyone's head when I said that. What was God's purpose in exposing Christ to unspeakable suffering? Surely he had a purpose. We know he did. I've wrestled a little bit with a theme verse for 1 Peter and Unfortunately, there's a number of them, and I can't choose one. So I'm going to have to say there's several. But if you flip your page from 1 Peter 1 to 1 Peter 2, and look at verse 21, there's an answer to a very important question. Why in the world would God expose his son, his only son, the son of his love, to such unspeakable suffering? Surely he had a purpose. I imagine a number of you would have thought, well, it's to accomplish the salvation of man. And that is certainly a prime purpose of Christ's suffering. But it's not the only purpose. Oh, how do I know that? Because the word of God says it isn't. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. Mm, No, this isn't reading right. I'm in 2 Peter. I hope you're in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. That probably wasn't what most of you thought of right away when I said, what was God's purpose in exposing Christ to suffering? To set an example for us. Who's really pleased to be a part of a religion that teaches as a doctrine that we are called to suffering. Christ was the suffering servant of God, and we are suffering servants of Christ. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps.
Suffering is not an indication that something's wrong in the Christian life. Suffering is the Christian's native soil, the natural condition it's expected. We don't go out looking for it, but we aren't surprised when it happens. I really do want to get to my text before my time's half over, but mark first Peter 1 and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 just briefly. I want to spend a little time setting the stage for talking about how we relate to suffering in our Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. All right. Paul is speaking here to the saints at Corinth, and he says this. I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off scouring of all things unto this day. All right. Well, thank God we're not apostles. Who wants to apply to that job? Off scouring of all things. Have you ever drained a kitchen sink and seen the scum that's left at the bottom? That's the off scouring. Paul says that's what apostles are. Boy, am I glad I'm not an apostle. But the text goes on. Verse 14, I write these things not to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Ooh, that sounds a little risky. I warn you, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Paul is calling the rank and file, the the pew warmers, people like us, the people in the pews at the church in Corinth to follow him as being the off scouring of the world. I had talked about that word for following in Ephesians and said that the Greek word is mimetes and we get our word imitate from it. And the best translation is to say that we are to be imitators of Paul. He says, be ye imitators of me. Well, imitate what? We have to look back. Fools, weak, despised, hunger, thirst, naked, buffeted, no certain dwelling place, labor with our hands, reviled, persecuted, defamed, filth of the world, off scouring of all things unto this day. Boy, there's somebody that I want to imitate 
Do we want Paul's job? Paul says, be ye therefore imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He calls us here to follow him in his afflictions. All right. The afflictions of the gospel. Who wants a big old sack full of the afflictions of the gospel? If I was giving them out up here and you had the opportunity to come get a bag and fill it up, I saw a box out front. Some kind sister, I imagine, has put a box out for lettuce. I didn't see a price on it. I figure it's the Lord's day. It's probably not for sale. It's probably free. You know, we all want to take that whole box, but we're just going to take a little because we don't want to be greedy. And it says help yourself free and take a little like to take a lot, but we'll take a little. I didn't bring it today. I did bring a couple things. My girls are all motivated to see what these two object lessons are. I hope I get to them. But I didn't bring a box, and I probably should have, that I put a sign on and some bags hanging on the side, and I invite you, and I say, free, help yourself, take all you want, afflictions of the gospel. Come on up after the service. Make a line. I I don't want to see a crowd here. This could be embarrassing. Everybody fighting to get some afflictions of the gospel. I don't think there'd be a line. I'm not sure I'd be in that line. So we ask the question. It's the question all children ask their parents. And we ask God. Why do your people have to suffer? Why can you not deliver us from suffering? It seems like it's a small thing to ask. Why, God? Why? Why, why, why? How about a blessing for your people? How about the unregenerate, the worldling, indulging in a life of carnality and wickedness? How about he suffers and the righteous live a life of ease? What's wrong with that? Is that asking too much? Why do your people suffer? Why are they singled out, especially, it seems, for more suffering than the worldling? What's going on here? Well, there's two possible answers. Why do good people suffer? One answer is, God is bad and not good. He's a bad God. He gets a sick pleasure from seeing his children suffer. We as human parents would recoil from that. None of us would want to just see our children suffer just out of wickedness, but if God was bad, and don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying God is bad. If God was bad, he could inflict suffering on his children just out of a badness in his character. That's a possibility. Another possibility is God is weak. God sees his children suffering. He wrings his hands. He struts around and I wish I could do something about it. Look at them down there. These people are dying for their faith. They're they're naming the name of Jesus. They're walking in righteousness and they're suffering. And there's absolutely nothing I can do. Okay, that would be a God that was weak. I don't need to tell you. Servants of the living God that you do not serve a God who is not good. And you do not serve a God who is not great. God is good and God is great. He is not bad and he's not weak. Why do good people suffer? 
God is not bad and God is not weak. There's only two possibilities there for why good people suffer. And we just struck them both down because the character of God cries out against an accusation that he is bad or that he is weak. Well, shame on me. I've offered you a false dilemma. I don't know if you ever heard that term before. A false dilemma is saying it's this or this when there's another possibility. There is a third possibility, and that is that our great God has an eternal purpose in the suffering of his people. The central theme of 1 Peter is not that suffering is a possibility. The theme of 1 Peter is not that suffering is a certainty. The theme is not that you are called to stoically endure suffering. Just let it run off you like water off a duck's back. I can take it. I can take it. Grit your teeth through the suffering. And at the end of it, you're still standing. That's not the theme of First Peter. I'd like to say that without the Spirit of God, the worldling can do that. I know people that have undergone, without the Spirit of God, incredible suffering and stoically stood and suffered under that suffering. So if you profess to possess the spirit of Almighty God within you, wouldn't it be disappointing if you were only called to do something a worldling can do? That's almost a little fishy. Spirit of power, Almighty God. And all I'm asked to do is something that could have been done without that spirit. I would like to say that the theme of Peter is that we, as God's people, are called to not seek out suffering, not even necessarily enjoy it, but to expect it and embrace it, to accept it, and to rejoice in it. Okay, you don't have to take my word for that, fortunately, because I think that it's clearly supported in the word of God. And until we're finished here, I'm not going to have to scuff around and feel badly for saying something that you might not just right away accept. Suffering is Christian's native soil. Expect it. Embrace it. Turn back with me to First Peter. All right, we're headed for 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 9. I'm going to get there, but 1 Peter 4, just briefly. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13. Rejoicing in suffering sounds like nonsense. Peter says later in the epistle, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. 
I notice here in verse 13 this command to rejoice in fiery trials. In the teeth of a fiery trial, rejoice is present tense. That is, Christ's coming, second coming, his future, his glory shall be revealed, his future, and you will be glad with exceeding joy then. Praise God for that. But your call today, now, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though a strange thing happened to you, but rejoice. With eyes of faith looking ahead, we rejoice in the teeth of a fiery trial. That is how a Christian relates to the suffering that God brings into his life. All right. First Peter one and verse three. I'd like to read this as a text. <clears throat> Ask if you'd stand for the reading of the word of God. Startle everyone back to alertness. Blessed, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, the trial of your faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen ye love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. All right, there's six verses here, and it breaks neatly into two parts. I like it when things do that. Verses 3 to 6 tell us why to bless God. Speaks of an incredible salvation reserved for you in heaven. A kept salvation for a people that are kept by the power of God. So we have an inheritance that's kept. We are a people that are kept by no less than the power of God. That is a really good reason to bless God. Praise God for that. Verse 3 begins, not with a prayer that God would be blessed, but with a command, an imperative to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We drop the B, it's an insertion. It isn't helpful, it changes a command or a prayer. Blessed be God, God is blessed. We are to bless God. How do we bless God? First, we know why we have reason to bless God. We understand this salvation. It's amazing. Bless God, of course. We bless God for an amazing salvation. But how? Why is the motivation? How is the nuts and bolts? How do we bless God? And this is where we find ourselves now in verse 6 through 9. Last message was primarily on verse 6. We started in verse 6 with the 
word wherein, which looks back to the last three verses, talks about this incredible inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, wherein, in that salvation, ye greatly rejoice. Goes on to say, though now for a season, stop there and mention that for a season is talking about something brief, something small, something insignificant. It's not a season like the church age. It's not talking about an epoch in history. It's talking about a very small bit of time. Probably doesn't interest you, but it does me. So I inflict it on you. The term season is a Greek word, oligos. And oligos is a word we know in English. Because we know what an oligarchy is. An oligarchy means a few people in power. If uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi say, we're in power, absolute power. They called the shots. They ran the nation. They would be an oligarchy. That is all that power in the hands of a very few. Takes this Greek word oligos which means few or small or brief and applies it instead of a monarchy with one ruler to an oligarchy with a few rulers. Peter is saying in verse 6, you rejoice because now for a short time, a very small session of suffering seems big. I mean, I think I know as well as many of you the crushing burden of heaviness, whether it's spiritual or physical or both. Peter reminds us it's for a season. It's oligos. It's a little bit. Not that it's easy, but it's for a season. Then he goes on to say, if need be. And that sounds like, well, God isn't sure, and I might need suffering for you and not for you, and we'll just see how that all shakes out. It's actually saying need be. It's going to come to pass. It has to. God has to do it. We trust the character of God. He doesn't inflict suffering on his beloved children without a good reason and purpose in mind. I think I've, I think I've told the story before. I only have a few stories that are really good, and this is a really good one. I'm pretty sure I've told it. And Jason will correct me afterwards because I'll probably have some Details wrong, but the, the gist of it is right. And that is, I think, four years old, okay, give or take. He's a little boy and did something kind of dumb. I think he fell on a heat register, a sharp metal thing, laid open his scalp. We go to the hospital. He's sitting on the bed in the emergency room or whatever they call that thing, table. And here comes the doctor, and the doctor's got a syringe and a needle. And he's going to start pricking holes in my son. And my son's sitting there and his eyes are getting big and he sees what's coming. He has no idea why he has to sit there and get stuck with a needle and stuck with another needle and threaded. And But he looks at that needle and he looks at me and he trusts me, I think. And he sat and to this day I can still remember it. He sat and took it. Tears running down his face, but not a peep, not a sound. He took it. Didn't fight. I expected to have to hold the top of his head and hold his arms and do that awful thing. He took it. Why? 
He trusted that it was necessary. He trusted. The character of his father, he would not ask him to submit to suffering without a good reason. He didn't understand it. He couldn't see the end from the beginning. But he trusted. All right. We greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, and it does, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. All right. That just has a melody to it. It's, It's grand and beautiful. It's King James. Thank God for it. But it's also a little clumsy. Manifold means numerous. An exhaust manifold takes exhaust out of four cylinders and combines it into one. Manifold means many. It's a bunch. Manifold. Temptations. It's not the best word. It's a little clumsy. The word actually is kind of interesting in Greek. It's parazo, and we get our English word pierce from it. And what it's saying literally is that you're in heaviness because you feel like a pincushion. You're being pierced from every direction. Did you ever hear of dying of a thousand pinpricks? You know, sometimes we experience the loss of a spouse or a bout with cancer or some terrible childhood disease, uh, tragedies that I know nothing about, crushing major things. But many of us might be familiar as I am with just manifold piercings. It just seems like it's coming from every direction. Pinpricks, by themselves they wouldn't be much. But together they seem to well up and threaten to overwhelm. Peter's referring to this, manifold piercings. Ye are in heaviness through manifold parazo piercings. All right. These piercings are testings or trials. It goes on to say in verse 7, speaks of the trial of your faith. You know, trial is kind of a word that we misuse a little bit. We know that a criminal goes to trial. You know, the purpose of a trial is to find out what's inside of you. If you're a criminal, they want to find out the truth. You go to trial. We're going to try you. Try you and see what you're made of. See what's inside. Trial. I have two silver dollars here. I'm not going to give them away. Sorry. I thought about it, but it's kind of risky. One of them is only worth a dollar. You can't tell it from the other one by appearance or weight. They both weigh the same, and to you anyway, they look the same. One of them is worth a dollar. One of them is worth $50. What's the difference? If you read the back of them, they both say $1. The difference is what's inside of them. One of these is made of tin and nickel and shiny stuff. And one of them is largely over 90% pure silver. It has an intrinsic value. But you can't just look at it and tell the difference. How would we ever find out which was precious and which was not? Well, there'd have to be a trial. We would have to try it. We'd have to find out what's inside of it. What is it made of? Testings and trials. I want to come back to that because talk. 
The book of Proverbs speaks about silver tried in a pot and gold tried in a furnace. But I want to think about the trial of your faith, trying your faith, to think about it as piercing and penetrating and hurting and finding out what you're made of. What is your faith? Is it just words? Brought another, I guess, object lesson. I think that it's not allowed to have an object lesson in a sermon, so I'm going to call it an illustration. I brought an illustration. I think that's a little more mature and sanctified. I actually have several things here. I'm not going to get to them all. Put my little book away. Have a little tool here. This is actually an object of torture. No one wants to come up for the afflictions of the gospel. Does anyone want to come up and be tried by this cheese trier? This is a cheese trier. This finds out what's inside of a wheel of cheese. It finds out if it's valuable, if it's good, if it's worthwhile. We're going to talk about the trial of our faith, and I want to think about trying a wheel of cheese. I brought along a wheel of cheese. I'm a little embarrassed to bring it along. It has a label on it, and the label has a weight, and then next to the weight is a price, and it's a terrible price. Overpriced. I don't know. Seems like it takes a lot of time and money to make cheese. This block weighs 8.99 pounds, and it reflects a price... I'm just going to say in excess of $100. All right. Is this cheese worth $100? I was hoping you wouldn't all call out in one accord no. Because <laughs> that's not my point. I don't want to decide what one of Leroy's pole buildings is worth, whether it's overpriced. And I'd just like to ask you to not decide if my cheese is overpriced. But, I'd ask you, is this good cheese? Is it good cheese? Uh, if you say so, for that kind of money it ought to be. Well, you know what? We could apply that to the Christian life and say, Jesus died for your sins to make you a child of God. Does your faith have value? Is it sincere? Is it a saving faith? Well, well to Jesus, we, of course it has value. Mm, what's inside? What's it made of? Is it as good as what it cost? Is this cheese worth a hundred dollars? So, this could be a costly sermon. But this torture instrument, I kind of say that with a smile, but if this wasn't a block of cheese, but it was you, and God was exposing your faith to a trial, cutting and piercing, with manifold temptations to see what your faith is made of, to prove it, this would be a torture instrument. It would seriously do damage and it would seriously hurt. But it would not be without purpose. All right, see how we do here. Jared made this cheese and he's not here today. If he was, he'd be fussing me for poking a hole in his precious cheese. But all right. I'm exposing this cheese to affliction. 
I'm hurting this cheese. If you can stretch with me here, stay with me. This is an illustration. All right. And now I can find out something that I never could have known otherwise. What's it made of? What's inside it? All right. It looked good. It had a high price tag on it. Eh, must be good, but who can know? It had to be afflicted. It had to be tried with a cheese trier. That's what this is called. An instrument of torture, basically, to find out if it's worth what it costs. Now, all of you are wondering what that tastes like. I am, too. Hmm. It's good cheese. Not sure about 100 bucks. I can't afford to eat my own cheese. Now I'm stuck with a little bit of uh, rind. Nobody will know. Maybe we'll just ask $99 for it now. It has a hole in it. All right, are you all with me? Was that wasted time? I hope it wasn't. I didn't mean to say it lightly. I'm trying to get us to think about why God not only allows suffering, but ordains suffering for his children. Singles them out, Paul says. Off scourings. Why in the world? Well, it says right here in First Peter in chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith, the cutting and torture, the agony, the affliction, the suffering, the worrying, the knotted up, ache in your soul from troubles in this world that the trial of your faith might be found the next statement is parenthetical it could be set aside that the trial of your faith might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ that's the purpose for suffering it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 that we are to be to the praise of the glory of his grace if the grace of God cannot produce a Christian that can absorb suffering for a greater purpose, who would praise that grace? If the Christian responds to suffering in the same way as the worldling, what's the profit of the Spirit of God in a Christian? How in the world can we rejoice when we're hurting? We're called here. We're called here to rejoice with joy unspeakable. We're called to, in verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice. I made the comment last time. That is the strongest term for joy that is used anywhere in the New Testament. It's emphatic and it speaks of jumping for joy. It literally says, wherein ye jump for joy, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness. So the heaviness is weighing us down. But it's so small compared to the joy of being a child of God and looking ahead and seeing the return of Christ and knowing the unspeakable gladness that will be ours when he returns. And the suffering, it doesn't run off us like water off a duck's back. That's just oblivious. That's stoic. That's, I can take this. Crushing suffering. No. It's more like a shower in the morning. It reminds us something better is coming. 
It's a blessing. God doesn't waste the tears of his saints. My father, and I wonder if I told this story. I'm sorry, I feel like dementia might be coming fast. I forget what I've told and what I haven't. I think it's a danger being in too many churches, but my father, six months before he died of stomach cancer, was in the hospital in a cancer ward, and there were goners, and there were people that the hospital would invest in. And my dad was being asked to go to physical therapy um, and walk and do things that were agonizing to him. He would come back to the room shaking and sweating and saying, I'm not going tomorrow. A nurse came in, and as a comfort to him, I really appreciated it to this day. I can picture her saying this to my father. She didn't say, greatly rejoice in physical therapy, but she as much as said it. She said, what that therapy shows is that the doctors see that you have value and a future because there are people on this ward not getting physical therapy. They have no future. Their lives are spent. I'm not going to say they have no value, but I think you know what I'm getting at. The suffering shows that you're worth investing in. This is your Heavenly Father's attitude to exposing you to the suffering. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 27. <clears throat> Just say as a reaffirmation of the point of the message that we're investigating... God's eternal purposes in ordaining suffering for his people, the afflictions of the gospel. Psalm 27, verse 1. Familiar words, what do these have to do with suffering? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Uh, It's kind of interesting here that David says, one thing I want from the Lord, and then he goes on to list six things. I only want one thing. Bang, 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 bang. Six things. But they're actually all the same. He says here, one thing I desired of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, that I may inquire in his temple. In time of trouble, he will hide me in his pavilion. The secret of his tabernacle will hide me. He will set me up upon a rock. This is all speaking of the safety that comes from being a child of God. In spite of all the wicked and all the foes and all the enemies and all the suffering, He put me on a rock. And now, verse 6, shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Now, the image here is of these enemies beating on, say, David or us. And God lifts us up. He gets the head above the fray. The body's still down there. You're being pummeled by the enemies. But your head is above and you can look down and you have perspective. Now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. They're still round about me, but I've got some perspective now. 
Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. This is why I read this passage. So here's this image of this beaten up child of God, given some perspective to see why the enemies are having their way with him. And he offers sacrifices of joy. Thankful to his God, knowing that he's safe. The purposes of God in suffering. All right, I'm going to close with Psalm 66, four verses there. I feel like I should have gotten a little further with discussing this concept of how we relate to suffering. But then I think Peter spent a whole epistle talking about it, and we'll be talking about it for a while. I'm kind of enough of a task-oriented person that if I have a sermon, I want to talk about suffering and be done. And next time I want to talk about something else. It just seems like uh, whether it's the spirit of God or the word of God, he doesn't allow that. Let's look at Psalm 66 and then I'll bring this into a close. Verse eight. I want to notice here, I'm going to read verse eight to verse 12. I want to notice that verse eight and verse 12 are bookends. We want to notice this verse eight. Oh, bless our God, ye people. Make the voice of his praise to be heard. Which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. All right, so here it is. Bless God. Praise him. He's holding our soul. He won't let our feet be moved. Bless God for that. The psalmist says that. And then down in verse 12. The end of verse 12 says, thou broughtest us out to a wealthy place. Praise God for that. If you're a child of God, you are unsearchably rich, as it says in Ephesians. You have unsearchable riches. And according to verse 8, verse 9, he holds our soul in life. He won't let your feet be moved. What a God. Verse 9, verse 12. But verse 10 and 11 fall in between. What do we do with that? Where does suffering come from? Let me ask this question before you read verse 10 and 11. Where does suffering come from, right? Satan. Suffering's bad. Not the will of God. Hmm. Where does suffering come from God? It says here in verse 10, Thou, O God, hast proved us. The prover, the trier, the cutting the pain, the affliction, to see what's inside of that faith. Thou, God, has proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Do you know how silver is tried? Take these two dollars. Which one is silver? Which one is worth $50 and which one is worth a dollar? Takes 1,800 degrees. Melt it to 1,800 degrees and one of these, the weight is not going to change. The other one is going to burn up. It takes the furnace of affliction to prove the value of a silver dollar and of a child of God. God's purposes in the suffering of his people to prove them and to try them and to glorify himself. So where were we? Verse. Ah, I said, where does suffering come from? I think it might come through Satan, but it's ordained by God. I should also allow that suffering that comes from sin is not what I'm talking about here. 
If you've fallen into gross sin and you're suffering for it, okay, that's a different sermon. We're talking about walking uprightly and suffering in spite of it. Um, I should have, should have said that. I should say that better, but that's as best as I can say it. Thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us. As silver is tried in a furnace at 1,800 degrees, it's burned to see if it burns up. Thou broughtest us into the net. You know, our enemies try to catch us in a net. It says the net's from God. Thou, God, brought us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Are you suffering affliction, the ultimate source of it? According to the psalmist, is from God. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Verse 12, thou caused men to ride over our heads. Who wants to be wrapped up in a carpet, laid down on the ground, and have men on horseback ride over your head? That was a means of execution common in the day. David lays that at God's feet. Thou caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. Praise God today for that wealthy place. Think that as we understand the inestimable value of our salvation, the sufferings for a season, briefly, if need be, yes, they're necessary, but they grow strangely dim if we have our eyes fixed on invisible and eternal things. All right, my apologies. I didn't expect to wrap this up right here. Um, I will say that it shouldn't be surprising that God calls us to a right attitude to suffering. That is not only stoically enduring it, but embracing it, accepting it as the will of our Father who has a greater good in mind. In Proverbs, it says, as the refining pot is for silver. All right, that pot is the 1800 degree furnace and the silver is you. And the purpose is refining. It's burning off the lead impurities. It's the dross that's going to be burned off. As the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, so is a man. To his praise. That is the praise of God. The eternal purposes of God in our suffering is to prove our faith and to be to the glory of his grace as we endure in a way that's supernatural and beyond the ability of mortal man. Deuteronomy 26 says, speaking to the old covenant, children of God, holy spiritless, powerless, Here's what they were called to do. Thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee. Well, I know people who aren't converted who can very well rejoice in the good things God gives them. We are called to rejoice evermore. Rejoice in all things. And again I say rejoice, even in the teeth of unspeakable suffering. Let's kneel for prayer.